You're listening to KDNK's Public Affairs Program for Land's Sake. I'm Bill Kite, your host, and today we have author John Ross with us. Welcome, John. Hello, Bill. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thanks for uh, being uh, willing to do this today. We have some good news. Uh, It's really fortunate to have you uh, with us today, and I'll give that news here as I tell a little bit about you, if you don't mind. Please. Uh, uh, You're a historian, and in that capacity, you were a former editor for American Heritage Magazine, which I was quite enamored with when I was a kid and really loved to read. And you've written Enduring Courage, Ace Pilot Eddie Rickenbacker, and The Dawn of the Age of Speed, War on the Run, the Epic of Robert Rogers and the Conquest of America's First Frontier, and The Promise of Grand Canyon, John Wesley Powell's Perilous Journey and His Vision for the American West. That's the book we'll talk about today. And uh, you have some good news for us. I'm going to let you tell it about uh, that book and what's just happened uh, with it and you. Yeah, well, we just uh, I was a, won a fun award with it, the uh, Will Rogers Medallion Award for general nonfiction in, in, uh, of the West. And so that was uh, I was tickled to uh, get a nod at that um, from some folks who know about the West and have read a lot of books about the West. Well, congratulations, John, on that accomplishment. Thank you. I guess uh, the first question I'll ask uh, is, is why the Grand Canyon and John Wesley Powell in your book? Why did you write? Well, you know, you read, yeah, absolutely, Bill. You know, you read, you uh, mentioned a couple of books I've done in the past. I'm I'm very interested in um, these, you know, particular people at a particular interesting time in American history. And, you know, I don't know about you, but the Grand Canyon has been uh, like a magnet all throughout my life. I mean, I went there as a kid, as a teenager with my girlfriend. I backpacked down and spent a week down there. I, would, I brought back my kids and then my adult kids, and I've been there when it's, you know, three feet of snow and when it's over 100 degrees, and I've gone down the, um, you know, on the river, you know, and, and, and every time throughout all phases of my life, it's challenged me to think about, you know, our world and who I am and, uh, you know, our relationship to the natural world. And, you know, you can't go to the Grand Canyon without hearing about John Wesley Powell. You know, of course, so famously, he went down um, in tiny boats, wooden boats with 10 guys in 1869. And they knew... um, less about what they were going to come around each corner and see than uh, did Neil Armstrong when he went up to the moon. I mean, this was just um, uh, just the last spot of continental America that hadn't been, that been, been, been lived in by Native Americans and parts of it, but nobody had ever gone down the, the entire river through it. And um, he went on to become this incredible uh, visionary about sustainable land development, all sorts of things. And I was trying to put together how this guy, because he was this grizzled explorer. I mean, the story of him going down the river is just incredible. They lost a boat. They ran out of food. They nearly died just about every day. I mean, it's just an extraordinary experience. Um, and uh, three guys left at the end, and they were never found again in the desert. They just were gone. And, and it's just incredible, one of the most incredibly uh, interesting stories in American history. But I began to think about, well, what was this guy 
how did he become kind of this visionary, and what did the Grand Canyon have to do about it? Because I felt such a personal pull there. And, um, you know, we take for granted kind of with this, that the Grand Canyon today is this place of incredible, um, it's America's most iconic landmark. I mean, really, if you think about it, it's more than a mile gash in the earth. It's an extraordinary thing. You know, it, it shows our exceptionalism as a country. I mean, no other place in the world has anything that is like it, quite like the, the Grand Canyon. And, um, but in John Wesley Powell's day, the Grand Canyon and before that were, was a place that people ran away from. You know, you look, they looked down in that huge hole and they, you know, were scared and they went around, you know, went the other way quickly. Um, John Wesley Powell was very instrumental in making and understanding the Grand Canyon and talking to people about it and going down the river and making it part of the fabric of who we are as Americans. And, um, when I think about what he what he went through, you know, there's all of the waves and the near death and the things that went on. It's very exciting, but it kind of is hidden through the ages of storytelling of this event that this that John Wesley Powell was a uh, was a geologist, and when he went through, you know, you start um, up around 250 mile uh, million years ago with a with a limestone um, and uh, you go down, and it's like you go down in time, down through 19 different, um, you know, layers, down to about a billion years. The rocks are about a billion years old. And what this guy saw for the first time so viscerally was a history of the Earth. And there were volcanic events and crazy geological things going on and all kinds of different... There were inland seas that were receding. There was all sorts of crazy things. And what he saw was that... The world around us, which in our lifetime doesn't change a whole lot, he saw that the Earth's history was changing so much, and that really stimulated him to think about the world in new ways. Yeah, he was an amazing individual. I, uh, as a kid, uh, started falling in love with the uh, with the land uh, through his uh, uh, through his vision that was told by Wallace Stegner in Beyond the Hundredth Meridian. And so I've I've been the same way, uh, fascinated by the Grand Canyon and also just uh, the kind of man that uh, John Wesley Powell was, which I think would be required to compete to, or complete the feat that he did. So yeah, amazing. Uh, well, John, what is the promise of the Grand Canyon, without spoiling those that uh, definitely are going to want to read this book? Well, you know, the promise is a bit of a tease, as uh, often good book titles are. But, right. um, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, like I was saying, when I kept coming back kind of individually as a person, uh, you know, throughout my life to the canyon, it's a, um, it, the promise is that there are things that it's, it uh, makes us think about. You know, as individuals, I think nationally as a people about, you know, how we deal with things and how we think about the, the natural world. So the promise is a bit of a tease that it's kind of, um, um, you know, it's this thing which keeps, can keep renewing us and keep us thinking about the land and its use and the, and, you know, and who we are. It's such a dramatic tableau upon which we can feel small, inspired, terrified it runs the whole gamut you know of uh, of emotion so uh, that we that we can bring to it so um that's what the promise is yeah you know uh, as someone who who feels at home only in the colorado plateau when i got to page 104 in your book 
that very last sentence all the way through the next paragraph, describing the Colorado Plateau is the best description I've ever read. Could could you read that for us? Would you would you do that? Oh, sure. Be, sure, happy to. The expedition would traverse the entire Colorado Plateau, the human heart-shaped 130,000-square-mile desert province that straddles the four corners, the juncture of the present-day states of Utah, Arizona, Colorado, and New Mexico, averaging about 6,000 feet, second in height only to the Tibetan Plateau. This is a remote, difficult land of mesas, cliffs, escarpments, and endless canyons. The fa- this family of rivers cut like coronary arteries from the north-northeast of the plateau to its southwestern edge, where the United River attains its most magnificent expression as it drops precipitously through the Grand Canyon and off the plateau. That's just a, that's a great uh, description. Thank you, John, for reading that. Uh, you know, the Colorado Plateau has got so much history and prehistory in it, uh, and and so much variation that, um, like I say, I really don't want to live any other place. Um, you know, uh, Paola explored that last part of of the Colorado Plateau, the the Tierra Incognito, in the, not just the Grand Canyon, but the last unnamed mountains in the United States, were the Henry Mountains in Utah. And I don't know, did he name them or did his crew name them the Henry Mountains? In reading your book, I um, he the latter. You know, he did after the. After the um, Joseph Henry, who was the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, so you know these guys were tacking on, uh, um, you know, the names of patrons and friends, and you know because as you mentioned, um, you know people hadn't been through there, so uh, you know, and, and the land he on the Colorado Plateau wasn't just the Grand Canyon, of course, that he was looking through, but it was hundred by three hundred mile section you know, Zion and Bryce and, uh, you know, some of these areas which he was among, the, you know, the first to get to. It's really kind of extraordinary. And certainly today, the, you know, the, one of the most highly concentrated areas of national parks and monuments in the, in the nation attest to how, you know, extraordinary the land is here. Exactly. Yep. And um, why do you think Powell was so interested in, in the geography and geology of the West? And I, I asked that question having read with great interest, the early part of your book, going through who Powell was as a human being, really helped to prepare me for what he did. But what do you think was his his interest in geography and geology like, like he had? Well, you know, it's interesting. When you step back and you think about this guy, um, he lost his right arm at the Battle of Shiloh, Tennessee, during the Civil War. And he was of a generation that he that had seen the Union, you know, on the verge of collapse and dissolution. And, you know, it came together through the blood of men like Powell, you know, who um, who fought. And um, he had a real commitment in that kind of in that spirit to America and, and, and what America was about and making America just, uh, um, you know, realize its potential. And one of the things he really felt deeply was that America should know itself. It should know its land. It should know its geology. It should know where its mineral deposits are and, you know, the nature of it. And he, you know, um, Europe had, you know, had much time, you know, to explore, you know, pretty much everything about, you know, about it. And here in America, there was this really large section um, in the West um, that was, 
you know, people had, you know, there had been explorers and certainly Native Americans in it and all like that, but no comprehensive kind of understanding of what it was about. And of course, um, you know, and, and as far as a geologist goes, I mean, it was like a kid in a candy store um, without, you know, unlike the East where vegetation covers so many things, there were just so many opportunities here for him to, you know, see the geologic processes of the earth. And um, so he would um, um, uh, really invent the whole science of geomorphology, which is what, you know, what what are the earth's... Um, actions, you know, from erosion to volcanic um, eruptions to uh, all sorts of things that change the surface of the earth. He kind of, this was a, you know, a playground for him, but a serious playground, of course, where he could really see and begin to think about how do rivers run and how do mountains form. And he came up with some incredible ideas, you know, early then about how, you know, you look at a dry desert, you know, in some of the, you know, in the Southwest, and uh, it's so shaped, he said it's more shaped, you know, by um, the, the clouds around the mountain peaks than the mountains themselves. It was the water that was shaping the rain um, and the flash floods um, that was sh- and the rivers that were shaping the um, this extraordinary, beautiful, austere land. So he really just started to, you know, I think it just was something that really um, excited him. He had an extraordinary curiosity. So um, I think this was just something that was just, uh, you know, the right guy in the right time, you know, kind of thing. Absolutely, because life is pretty much about relationships and timing, isn't it? So he definitely, oh you know, definitely got there at the right time. You're listening to Katie and Kay's public affairs program for land's sake. Today, our guest is author John Ross. John, uh, Powell had some pretty radical ideas for his time that weren't accepted. Um, had should they have been accepted, we'd live in a different uh, West, I believe. But uh, his, he really thought about watersheds rather than political boundaries and realized the scarcity of water in, in the West. Um, uh, could one say he was a conservationist who believed in sustainable land development uh, before those words entered into American consciousness? Yeah, Bill, you really put your finger on that because um, it, it, it's hard to call him an environmentalist in the same way John Muir was, for instance. Um, he was very interested in development and, you know, and again, reaching kind of America's great potential. But he was very aware of the earth and the geography and what was um, available to be used. And um, so that really tempered his thinking about the development of the West. And if you remember, you know, the, you know, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson, the whole idea of the yeoman farmer, you know, developing um, on little pieces of land. And so that the, a lot of the Midwest had been developed. You got, you know, the land rushes. You had a, the government would give you anybody who had a strong back, um, 160 acres. And if you could prove for a few years that you could till that land and make a living, it was yours, right? It's very exciting and very much a part of the early American government. When we got to the West, Powell said, well, you know, and he had traveled over more of it than anybody had. He had climbed, uh, you know, first got to climb Long's Peak down the Colorado River. Um, 
all these things he had surveyed, and he and he realized, of course, that that this was a different type of geography and topography, that there were real limitations of water, and you just couldn't go give um, anybody who wanted 160 acres um, that wasn't attached to water or irrigated somehow because it it, it just wasn't going to work. You might have a few good years, but it wasn't going to last. So Powell started this whole, he started thinking about any, 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 he had this incredible imagination, like I said, and he, he came up with this idea about the 100th meridian, and it's a line that goes north-south from Texas up through all the way to the Dakotas up into Mexico, right? And he's, he looked at that line, and, and he said that was the line um, that to the east of it, generally, you got 20 inches more of rain a year, which was fine for agriculture. It's what you needed. But to the west of it, with a few small, with some exceptions, you get 20 inches or less, which is not enough to, you know, support a small, you know, acreage. So he said, he threw out to everybody, look at this, um, you know, look at this line. When we're talking about developing the West, we really have to kind of, you know, factor this in. You know that 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 it's going to be a whole different beast, and the whole idea of watershed was just mind blowing for the time. There's this great map built, right, and it's the American West, and it looks like somebody has taken a paint gun to it, right? There are big <laughs> orange blotches and small green ones and red ones, and and they're watersheds, right? You know, watersheds being you know generally the idea that you know where rainfall. Goes that there are areas where water concentrates to a point, and you know, and there are individual kind of watersheds. And what his and and this map was revolutionary because instead of looking at the, you know, as you mentioned, the American West as political boundaries, you know, you know, kind of from Washington D.C. and Congress, you know, where the state boundaries were, you know, the way we usually think about America. He said, no, we've got to think about America in terms of its natural, not just that 100 meridian line, but what about watersheds? He was really concerned. I mean, this was unbelievably way before his time, because he said, okay, we need to keep water local, and the people, um, it should be tied to the land. It should be a place where the local people um, have control of the water, right? It's because water is a limited resource. And he said, think about this. You know, we should really be thinking in terms of that and not only state boundaries because the real conditions on the ground in the West are so defined by the water or lack of water. But, you know, his real genius, Bill, was that, you know, he looked back and he studied, you know, he studied the Indian use of, uh, Native American use of water. He looked at the Spanish in the Southwest, how they use water. He looked at Mormons' use of water. He went back and he studied, um, you know, the uh, populations that had crashed because of, you know, of, of lack of water. Um, and his genius, really, was to say that um, that these that those cultures did not... Um, die because of the, you know, of the absolute amount of water there was. They died because they didn't develop ways to equitably distribute the water, right? right. right. Um, and so, you know, every arid 
civilization doesn't stand or fall by the amount of water, even if it's limited, but its capacity to develop those economic, technical, political mechanisms to develop, as I said, the water, that water equitably and, and be kind of flexible to changing that. So what he saw is that if you don't begin to change those things, um, if you, and you don't really you know, develop the systems to think about it, then you're going to be stuck with kind of endless litigation over water, you know, shortages that are going to be crippling, crippling feuds over infrastructure. You know, each one of these, he was, you know, uh, afraid were, were, you know, were a threat to, to, you know, his beloved democratic society and this young republic. And that's, you know, as you mentioned, you know, he, he was, you know, he was shot down for a number of reasons, which we can get into, but, um, we do now live in a time where there are shortages, a lot of litigation over things, and um, people are beginning to come around and seeing that, boy, this guy, though he was uh, a, a person of the 19th century, really had a lot of extraordinary, savvy things to say about, you know, developing the West. He sure did, didn't he? For sure. You know, my interest in and Major Powell, uh, as he was called, is the role he had in founding the, the Smithsonian's Bureau of Ethnology. I think that was in 1879, and his relations with the Ute Indians. Um, he, you know, in your book, you say he met, he knew about 500 Ute words, which Ute's really hard to learn. I, I worked among the Utes for years. Uh, and what do you think drove him, <laughs> Powell, to seemingly study wherever he went, Everything about the land he could at once. Yeah, Bill, you know, I mean, this is another thing that people don't know too much about Powell, which is extraordinary, because there's just so much in this guy's, you know, his curiosity, as I mentioned, was just immense. And uh, he, one of his real loves, you know, um, which he just kept at with the Bureau of Ethnography was his his love of studying Native Americans and the cultures and how they lived on the lands. And he again, he was um, he started out as so many people did with collecting Indian artifacts and and clothing and and things like that. And then he moved, you know, as you can see him moving toward you know um, really being interested in the Indian customs and in the language. And, and, and he became one of the first immersive um, anthropologists. I mean, he went into a Hopi, you know, rain dance for 24 hours, you know, and took off all his clothes and went down there and into a... Um, a kiva, uh, wasn't it? The... Kiva, yes, a kiva. And, and, you know, and so his... He just wanted, he was like this sponge that he wanted to know more and more and more about the world around him. And, um, you know, of course, he too had some concerns about seeing, you know, what was happening to the Native Americans. I mean, you got to remember this is at a time when Indians, you know, you know, no kidding, you know, a good, you know, good Indian is a dead Indian. So he was, again, thinking outside the box, as he just did all of the time. And he thought, wow, here were, here were, um, people he could learn from it you know it didn't mean that he was you know he still was a man of the 19th century so he believed that they that indians weren't as evolved as the uh, american you know white europeans that, that there was a kind of a you know a uh of a of a you know kind of a of a you know 
a, a line of, of movement that you went up as you people got more and more civilized. So he had very 19th century views about that. But nonetheless, what he put together in terms of Indian language is extraordinary, Bill. I mean, he really became, it was the first real comprehensive study of, uh, you know, native populations pretty much anywhere. Um, he studied all of the, you know, all of the, the, looked at all the languages, you know, put them on maps, systematized the whole study of it. So he could kind of, you know, because he realized that this was, you know, they were losing their, um, you know, language was getting lost. Right. And, uh, you know, he's, he established all of these things which are still used today, you know, the, the, the whole way of looking at the study of, you know, of language and systematizing it and all like that. So, you know, his, his legacy on that front alone is another whole book. Well, yeah, we could we could spend hours you and I just talking about John Wesley Powell, couldn't we? For oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. You know, and really, absolutely. It's one of yeah. I really appreciate you uh, being with us today, John. And again, congratulations on your award. Really, uh, it's uh, great news for a writer. And uh, well, I appreciate that much, and uh, and I think it's uh, just. Uh, you know, encourage people to go out and read about this guy, not just in my book, but just to get to the Grand Canyon and, you know, and, and think about these early guys who were just so interesting. Absolutely. And uh, they'll learn how relevant Powell's ideas were uh, then and how they are today if they just uh, read your book. Uh, and that book, again, is Promise of the Grand Canyon. And uh, thank you for listening to Katie and Kay Listener and uh, for Landsake comes on every second Tuesday of the month at 4.30. Until then, whatever you do to Mother Nature, do it for land's sake.